Welcome to The S Factor. Now here's your host, Chuck Shazer. Hello everyone and welcome to another exciting edition of The S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. Welcome aboard my starship. The S Factor is all about science and I present to you today a brand new episode right here, December 5th. 2020. It's so great to be with you today. Thank you for joining me right here in this great radio station, Cruising 92.1 WVLT. Also, thank you for joining me on Facebook.com slash Science Animated, Twitter.com slash Science Animated, ScienceAnimated.net, and the Science Animated Podcast that you can find on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and TuneIn. S-Factors all over the place. This is your first time joining me. Welcome aboard. The S-Factor is all about science. It's all family-friendly. And this is my starship. I want to welcome you aboard. We're going to travel around the solar system. Maybe even go into inner space a little bit. We're going to talk about all things terrestrial and celestial right here on the S-Factor. The year is moving forward so quickly. I can't believe here we are, December 5th, 2020. 2020 is almost over, folks, and I know there's a lot of people out there that are looking quite forward to that reality, and what a year it has been for the S-Factor. I have been on the air now for officially one year, one whole year, and the S-Factor, we have covered everything from artificial intelligence to murder hornets to brain-eating amoeba, to trying to unlock and understand the science of love, Mars madness. When the pandemic hit, we talked about the history of viruses and what they are. We have talked about so very much. And by the way, if you ever miss the yes factor right here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT, be sure to check out the podcast which is available through scienceanimated.net. Just click the S-Factor podcast there. Or you can go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all you simply do is type in the S-Factor, and you'll see me there. Wherever you happen to be listening, if it's online, make sure you, you share it, give it a like. If you're, if you're listening to the podcast, please leave me a star rating and a comment. I always welcome the comments from my listeners. I have a great audience out there. Our, our communication back and forth has been awesome. I know this is a pre-recorded show, but I still like communicating with you. So if you have something to say to me, anything about the show that you would like to mention or a question or comment, you can reach out to me directly. I answer the emails, folks. You can talk to me directly by emailing info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. There's a lot of cool science news I want to cover with you today. And we're also going to talk about, this is super cool, this question that I present to you. This question of, are we living in a simulation? Wait a minute. I feel real. I feel solid. How can that be? 
How could this be a simulation? That sounds like nonsense, does it not? We're going to investigate that today. That's going to be our feature topic a little bit later. Let's get right into the science news here. Melting ice has revealed a spectacular trove of ancient hunting artifacts in Norway. Archaeologists have uncovered a treasure trove of artifacts as another major ice patch melts away in the Norwegian mountains, revealing a total of 68 arrows and many more items from an ancient reindeer hunting site. The earliest findings go back some 6,000 years, according to radiocarbon dating. They include reindeer bones and antlers, as well as scarring sticks, used to herd the animals into spots where they could be more easily hunted. Finds like this are becoming increasingly common as global temperatures rise, especially underneath static patches of ice. Remember we talked about the permafrost bear that they found under the Russian Arctic? I did, there's, there's a really cool animation. Uh, if you want to watch it with your kids, it's, it's called The Orbit Show. It's on my YouTube channel. And actually, I talked about permafrost melting and you know, what happens when my character Orbit stumbles upon this permafrost bear that's been trapped in the ice for like 30,000 years. It's a cool animation if you want to check it out. But we've talked about this before. The permafrost melting and unveiling something spectacular from our past. And that's what's happening here. Now, it happens especially underneath static patches of ice, which don't move around and break up objects the same way that glaciers do. As the planet's future becomes more uncertain, more of its past is being revealed. It is the ice site in the world with the most arrows and by a large margin. Doing field work here and finding all the arrows was an incredible experience, an archaeologist said. I remember telling the crew, enjoy the moment as much as you can. You will never experience anything like it again. The potential discoveries were so significant that a group of researchers kept the location of the site, the Langfone Ice Patch in the Jutenheim Mountains, a secret for years until all the artifacts have been recovered. The dates of the find stretch from the Stone Age to the Medieval Period, with different patterns across different time periods. Most of the arrows from the late Neolithic, which was 2400-1700 BC, and the late Iron Age, which was 550 to 1050 CE errors, and trying to piece together some of the history of the area from the discoveries, the researchers had to take a lot of different factors into account. The movement of ice and meltwater, the impact of winds and exposure, and so on. The elements are likely to have moved most of the artifacts from the site already, according to the team, while other items are still fixed in place, such as the scarring sticks that would have led reindeer to a spot to the northeast of the ice patch. It is important to keep in mind that ice patches are not your regular archaeological sites. They are situated in the high mountains in a cold and hostile environment. The forces of nature are on a very different scale up there than on normal archaeological sites in the lowlands. The way that some of the arrows have been crushed suggests ice patches do in fact move more regularly than previously thought. An idea backed up by a survey of the site taken using ground-penetrating radar. We're learning more about how the climate works, even as we're failing to properly manage it. The Langfone ice patch is now less, less than a third of the size it was 20 years ago, and has split into three separate sections. There's estimated to be around 10% of the ice cover here than there was in the Little Ice Age from the 15th to the 20th century. Considerable detective work is required to figure out how the condition and location of these finds point to the movements of ice, reindeer, and people. The researchers think that reindeer hunting intensified just before the Viking Age, from around 800 CE. 
but there's still a lot to learn. The study provides the first cohesive framework for understanding how archaeological finds from the ice are impacted by natural processes and, in turn, what we can interpret from the finds. Very basic stuff, really. Questions have been solved a long time ago in other areas of archaeology, but then again, melting ice patches are not your regular archaeological sites. This is the first step. Now, that was according to Science Alert. And, and how cool is that to find these ancient tools because of the melting ice? We're finding all kinds of stuff with permafrost melting. I mean, we're finding prehistoric animals with soft tissue that they can actually carbon date and study soft tissue, like for the first time ever. So, you know, global warming isn't necessarily a good thing, but look what we're, what we're finding. Now, these ancient tools were found in the Norwegian mountains. By the way, if you were looking for an awesome Christmas present, whatever holiday you happen to celebrate, this is the season of giving. And if you're looking for that special present this holiday season, check out my website, if you will, scienceanimated.net. The Yes Factor show here is brought to you by scienceanimated.net. There you will find a feature... You can purchase it as a DVD or a stream. It's a feature film, 40-minute feature. That is $9.99. It's called Science Animated, The Human Body. It's all about the human body. It is a 2D animation that is, I will guarantee you, it is the most exciting educational film you'll ever watch with your family. I have had families buy this, whether you're a parent, homeschooler, or teacher, I have had people buy this from coast to coast across the United States since this film has come out. I get letters from people, their kids can't stop watching it, and can you imagine, look how often kids are on their phone now playing video games. Now imagine something educational they can't stop watching, and the reason for that is, is because it has a unique blend of action-adventure mixed within the educational framework of the movie. It's called Science Animated Human Body. I'm the creator of it. It's only $9.99 for the stream. The DVD is $16.99. It's free shipping. You'll get it in time for Christmas, especially the stream. Very inexpensive Christmas present, and I'll guarantee your kids will like it, or your money back. I'm so confident in saying that because I've sold so many, and Everyone has loved the movie, <laughs> from adults to the kids. So the kids watching over and over again, it's a great thing to have your kids uh, into that much because I think it promotes education and learning. And, you, and we mix the fun aspect of, of things, the entertainment value is there. And it's just a great present. Uh, I've sold so many of these movies and I know your kids will enjoy it. Check it out, scienceanimated.net. Science Animated the Human Body makes an awesome Christmas present and it's very affordable. Now, have you ever seen a ridiculously large piece of lightning and thought to yourself, that looked extremely large, larger than lightning normally looks? Well, superbolts are real, and they flash up to 1,000 times brighter than regular lightning. Satellite data revealed millions of superbolts over the Americas between 2018 and 2020. Superbolts, flashes of lightning that are up to 1,000 times brighter than average, really do exist. Two new studies confirm this. A landmark study coined the term in the 1970s, but in the intervening years, 
experts questioned if superbolts are genuinely brighter than most other lightning, or if they simply appear brighter depending on the angle of the satellite observation. Recently, after evaluating years of data, scientists confirmed these ultra-bright bolts can produce at least 100 gigawatts of power. That sounds like what Doc Brown needed in Back to the Future. All these gigawatts, Marty, these gigawatts. Now, to put that into perspective, the 100 gigawatts, the power produced by all solar panels and wind turbines in the United States in 2018 was about 163 gigawatts. And that's according to the U.S. Department of Energy. That's that. Researchers also discover that much like comic book superheroes, super bolts have a have an unusual origin story. Lightning forms when electrical charges in clouds and on the ground interact. And in most of these events, the clouds are negatively charged. However, superbolts form during rare cloud-to-ground interactions, in which the clouds are positively charged, the scientists reported. Superbolts were first described as lightning flashes that were over 100 times more intense than typical lightning. According to a study published in 1977 in the Journal of Geophysical Research, lightning data for that study came from observations by Vela satellites, which were launched in 1969 to detect nuclear explosions from space, and operated until 1979, according to NASA. Vela's instruments recorded thousands of lightning strikes per year, including superbolts that struck around the world with most frequent occurrence over the North Pacific Ocean. B.N. Terman, a researcher with the Air Force Technical Applications Center in Patrick Air Force Base in Florida, wrote that in the study. One superbolt flash near South Africa in 1979 was so powerful that it was thought to be the detonation of a nuclear bomb. Can you imagine? That's how powerful this superbolt was, this lightning strike? The New York Times reported that that year. Another superbolt that struck Newfoundland in 1978 left a one-mile swath of damage in its wake, the Times reported. Ladies and gentlemen, think about that for a minute. A superbolt, this this lightning, superbolt, left a one-mile swath of damage in its wake. That's crazy, (laughs) is it not? And it goes on to say this. Trees were split. Television antennas were twisted beyond recognition, transformers were shattered, and circuit breakers hung from power line poles. And there were craters in the new fallen snow, according to the Times. But superbolts are also super rare, which is super good, I think, in my opinion, occurring only five times in 10 million flashes, Terman wrote in the study. For the two new studies, both published on November 12th in the Journal of Neophysical Research, Atmospheres researchers again turn to satellites for Super Bowl observations. The first study described the brightest lightning flashes over the Americas, recording between 2018 and 2020, by a sensor called the Geostationary Lightning Mapper, mounted on the Geostationary Observational, excuse me, Operational Environmental Satellites. We focused on superbolts that are substantially brighter than normal lightning, at least 100 times more energetic and then looked at the top pulses above that threshold, with the top cases even going beyond 1,000 times brighter, said Michael Peterson, lead author on both studies and a remote sensing researcher 
at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. In the second study, scientists analyzed data collected from 1997 to 2010 by the Fast On-Orbit Recording of Transient Events Satellite. They learned that certain viewing conditions did affect lightning brightness when the satellite's view was obstructed by clouds. A bolt could appear somewhat brighter, and some suspected superbolt observations did fall into that category, the study authors reported. However, those circumstances are only a problem for the dimmer cases near the minimum superbolt threshold, and real superbolts were significantly brighter than that, Peterson told Life Science in an email. The scientists found that superbolts could emanate from electrical pulses between clouds, as well as from cloud-to-ground pulses. Superbolts that appeared over the ocean were fueled by the gradual buildup of electrical charges in the storm clouds. So it wasn't surprising that bolts would be more powerful when all that electricity was eventually released, according to the study. The brightest superbolts tended to cluster in geographic regions where large thunderstorms are common. And superbolt appearance was associated with long horizontal lightning flashes that can span hundreds of kilometers, which have been recently termed mega flashes, Peterson said. These new findings could help scientists to better understand the scenarios that can shape these unusually powerful strikes. It turns out these flashes are exceptional in all their characteristics, not just their size, he said. Now, on February 19th, 2019, there is a lightning flash that spans several hundred kilometers and lasted nearly seven seconds. Could you imagine? I've never seen a, stri- a lightning strike that lasted seven seconds. Usually it's a, a real quick flash, so these superbolts are really something else. Have you ever seen one of these superbolts? If you have, let me know. You can email me at info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. I want to know if you've ever seen one of these things. Of course, I'm coming to you from South Jersey. You could be listening to me from anywhere, not just in our region here, but you could be listening to me in California via the podcast, anywhere. Wherever you are in America, email me. I want to know if you've seen one of these Super Bolts. They sound insane. Now, how many of you out there like insects? I like the way they look. I would venture to guess that most people out there think insects were pretty disgusting looking. You know, let's face it, they don't look much like human beings at all and what we normally consider to be cute animals. You don't see a lot of insect toys for young children usually. Usually the plush, plush toys are bears and lions, you know, like teddy bears, of course, and cats and dogs and horses and and things of that nature, but how many of you actually think that, you know, insects are kind of cute? Well, probably not too many of you. I know my sister-in-law certainly wouldn't fall in that category. Uh, Rosalinda does not like spiders, for example. I know that very well. And listen, I'm not a big fan either. I mean, some of these little creepy crawlers can, you know, with all, you know, several, used to two eyes, right? These things have several eyes, a little bit of fur. And by the way, thank goodness the honeybees have fur because that fur collects pollen from one plant, brings it to another, and pollinates our vegetable and fruit plants so we can have way more fruits and vegetables than we would otherwise if it wasn't for their help, and they do that 
you know, uh, without even realizing it. And then, of course, you had years ago, of course, you know, Rick Moranis just kind of made a comeback in Hollywood, a very low-key one at that, but he's just recently made a comeback, and he was in so many movies, such a talented guy. One of his most famous movies, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, do you remember that? I was very young. I was a kid when I went to the movies to see that. I forget what year that was. It had to be in the early 90s. It had to be. So in that movie, there's a shrink ray that hits them. And now they're the size of, or actually smaller than ants. So that movie did, I thought, a great job of showing what an ant would look up close and personal, what an ant would look like uh, in comparison to a human. And, you know, I think the ant got a little heroic spot in that film and you know by the time that movie was over I think people were were kind of fond of ants they painted ants in a very positive light in that film and ants listen ants are they go about their business they didn't really hurt anyone unless you've got fire ants in Florida and you get bit by some of those little guys it's not too fun but regardless of if you think insects are cute or horrific here's an interesting story by National Geographic Leafcutter ants have rocky crystal armor never before seen in insects. Researchers have discovered a new type of mineral, similar to dolomite, covering the exoskeleton of leafcutter ants. Leafcutter ants are named for their Herculean feats. They chomp foliage and carry unwieldy pieces, like leaf flags many times their size, long distance to their colonies where they chew up the leaves to feed underground fungus farms. These ants are hard workers. Along the way, the insects brave all manner of predators and regularly engage in wars with other ants, and that's true. When, we're, when you were a kid, did you ever take an ant and, and drop it into another ant colony? War erupts, boy, let me tell you. But these insects are even tougher than previously thought. A new study shows that one Central American leafcutter ant species has natural armor that covers its exoskeleton. This shield-like coating is made of calcite with high levels of magnesium, a type found only in one other biological structure, sea urchin teeth, which can grind limestone. Ooh, that's some tough stuff right there. Bones and teeth of many animals contain calciferous minerals and crustaceans, such as crabs and lobsters, have, mineral have mineralized shells and other body parts. But before this finding, no type of calcite had been found in any adult insect. In leafcutter ants, this coating is made of thousands of tiny plate-like crystals that harden their exoskeleton. This armor helps prevent the insects from losing limbs in battles with other ants and staves off fungal infections. According to a paper published November 24th in the journal Nature Communications, the discovery is especially surprising because the ants are well known. There are thousands of papers on leafcutter ants, says a study co-author Cameron Curry, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We were really excited to find one of the most well-known studied insects in nature. Though this paper looked at only one species, Curry and colleagues suspect other related ants have the biomineral also. 
Now, long before humans and their immediate ancestors involved, about 60 million years ago, leafcutter ants invented their own form of agriculture. These underground fungal farms are a result of a symbiotic relationship that provides food for ant larvae and protection for the fungus, and each ant species has its own species of fungi. So these little ants are farmers. Some of the nearly 50 species of leafcutter ants, including the ant in the study, also harbor a symbiotic bacterium to keep gardens from becoming infected by other harmful fungi. This microbe coats young workers as they meander through their fungus gardens. The bacteria secrete chemicals that kill the invasive fungi. A formal postdoctoral researcher in Curry's lab, now a researcher at Ningbo University in China, began studying these bacteria and soon became intrigued by the strange tiny crystals covering the ant's exoskeleton. He convinced geologists to help him study the mineral-like material using several types of imaging techniques, including electron microscopy, to characterize the composition. When Lee got the results one morning in, the, in 2018 showing the ants are covered in a type of biomineral not previously seen in any insect, he was ecstatic. There was rock on the ants. I found rock ants, he said. Lee says the ants' armor is very similar in composition to the mineral dolomite, except slightly harder. So imagine, they already have these exoskeletons. They're not like us. They don't have the endoskeleton. They have the exoskeleton. So they can withstand blows. That's their armor. That is like the armor of a medieval knight. And now they have something extra on top of that as well. Like all insects, ants have exoskeletons made of, made of chitin, which is tough and flexible. To see if this additional layer of biomineral acted as extra armor... Lee and colleagues first raised ants in the lab with and without the biomineral layer. If ants are separated for their colony as pupae and raised in certain conditions, they don't develop the coating. They then did several tests. One of these experiments involved pitting these ants against a slightly larger but closely related species in ant wars. Dun, dun, dun. Over the course of an hour's battle, the rock ants lost three times fewer body parts than those without the mineral coating. So look at that. Look how important that mineral coating is on the armor of the ant, on the exoskeleton. Next, the researchers exposed the insects to a pathogenic fungus which can infect ants and is related to fungal species that cause zombie-like behavior. After six days, all the mineral-free ants had died, but only half of their armored kin had succumbed. The mineral coating also expands as the ants grow older. Young ants tend to the fungal gardens and don't face a high risk of attack by other ants or predators and have little need for it. By the time they begin to forage in the world outside the fungus gardens, they have a thicker coating than they did as youngsters, Lee says. Andrew Serez, an entomologist at the University of Illinois, says it's particularly exciting to see this type of mineral in an exoskeleton. Considering similar minerals were previously found in more isolated, specialized structures, such as teeth. This would be like having your body covered in tiny crystals of enamel. I enjoyed this paper as it documents something new, biomineralized skeletons in insects, says Andrew Knoll, a biomineral expert at Harvard University. A number of anthropods make calcium carbon exoskeletons, including crabs and lobsters and the extinct trilobites, but extending this to fully terrestrial insects is genuinely interesting. 
The scientists also say these kinds of biomineral crystals could have manufacturing applications in the future, such as in coatings or nanocrystals that add strength to or prevent corrosion in various materials. For now, the scientists say the point is to understand the role these minerals are playing in the ants themselves and see if there are other as-of-yet-undiscovered armors and biominerals out there. It's likely there are, Curry says, if you don't know about the biomineral in the species, what does it say about the 99.9% .9 of insects that have received little or no study? That is true, and think about it. Think about how we can possibly mimic that armor and what it would mean for, like, say, space travel, or just preventing metal from, from rusting if you could somehow apply it to, to a metallic object to prevent or delay erosion just from the environment. It's incredible. It's incredible the things that we can learn from other creatures on, on planet Earth, how they survive and how they thrive. You look into that little world and you can discover some things and maybe some things that we can even apply in our lives in our big world here. All right, folks, before we start talking about whether or not we're living in a simulation, I want to take a quick time out and tell you about some of my sponsors, one in particular right now, and that is Tawny Fit. Now, we're, we're kind of right in the middle of the holiday season right now. We just had Thanksgiving. It's December 5th now, and that means there's more to come. There's more delicious food coming our way, right? Hopefully we can get together with our loved ones, even if it's virtually. But chances are, this holiday season, you may put on a few pounds because there's so much great food around us, right? If that happens, don't stress about it. Don't worry about it at all because I have a solution for you. If you feel tired, you don't have it in you to, to work out, it's very understandable. Everyone has busy lives today, right? So, one of the sponsors of the show is Tawny Basil. She's a certified personal trainer, and she can help you reach your fitness goals. Maybe you just need that little boost from a personal trainer. Well, she can help you. And if you're afraid to get coronavirus, you don't really want to go to a gym, that's completely understandable. And if you want to go to a gym, you want to get out and go to a gym, that's understandable too. Either way, if you want to go to a gym and work out, or if you'd rather stay at home, Tawny Basil can have a tailor-made workout plan for you. Whether it's going to the gym or not going to the gym, she has live virtual sessions. She can help you meet your fitness goals. Now, Tawny Fit Personal Training, offers in-home sessions, in-gym sessions, which she kind of favors that, virtual sessions, and check this out. Just in time for the holiday season, just in time for Christmas coming up, gift cards are available as presents. Can you imagine giving the gift? Well, you know, I don't know what to get somebody, right? Well, you can get somebody science animated the human body as an educational gift, especially for youngsters that you may know. What about giving yourself a gift too? The gift of fitness. Or someone that you know and love the gift of fitness. Maybe someone that you know is in dire need to get their health in order. To get their affairs in order as far as their health is concerned. 
Tony Basil can help you do that. Tony Basil can help them reach that goal. Now, how do you contact Tony? Easy. TonyFit at gmail.com. That's TonyFit at gmail.com. And guess what? That's not all. If you mention that you heard this ad on the S Factor, she will give you one free session. You can't beat free, right? Well, she will give you one free session, and all you have to do is mention the S Factor. You heard it right here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT. Just mention you heard it on the S Factor, one free session coming your way. Great Christmas gift if you want to give her a gift card for Tawny Fit, or if you just want to do something for yourself in the upcoming new year that everyone's looking such so forward to, 2021. Tawny Basil can be your personal guide to better health in 2021. Give her a shout at tawnyfit at gmail.com. Tawnyfit at gmail.com. Car buying can be a brutal experience. Pushy salespeople and deals that are too good to be true. Choosing the right dealership is crucial in today's marketplace. So, where can you go? Since 1976, there has been a dealership in Vineland that is family-owned and operated and has a diverse selection of cars, trucks, utility vehicles, and more. JNC Auto Sales at 1912 West Landis Avenue in Vineland can guide you through the car buying experience with no hassle and a laid-back atmosphere. The Shazer brothers carefully select each vehicle they sell and offer Carfax reports on all their inventory. Shop in a stress-free environment and get the vehicle you want at a price that won't rock your bank account. Stop by and mention the S-Factor for a special offer. J&C Auto Sales is located at 1912 West Landis Avenue in Vineland. You can give them a call today at 856-696-4072. That's 856-696-4072. Or check them out online at jcauto.net serving South Jersey for 44 years. Welcome back to the S-Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. Thank you for joining me here right on this great radio station on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. You can catch me the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock right here on this station. And also, if you miss an S-Factor episode, you can go to scienceanimated.net. That's my website. Check out all the past S-Factor shows. This radio show has been on the air now for one year, and I've covered some really cool topics like murder hornets, artificial intelligence, what is love, Mars madness, what are viruses, the list goes on and on. Check it out, scienceanimated.net. You can listen to past S-Factor episodes. And don't forget, if you love podcasts, it's available in podcast form on Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcast, all you gotta do is type in the S Factor, and you'll see me right there. You see my beautiful face pop right up. How's that? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding about that. But you can find me on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and of course, scienceanimated.net. So again, I want to thank you for joining me. Now, when you think about is this a simulation? Is our life a simulation? It's really hard to believe for some people, and maybe not so hard for others. If you look at our computer technology, if you look at how fast we have developed and how fast we have come since the advent of computers. So how many of you have ever thought to yourself, hmm, I've watched The Matrix. I know how powerful computers are and I can only imagine what they're going to be like in, let's say, three, four, five hundred years and what kind of software we're going to have then. 
it, it, your mind can go in so many different directions. It's pretty exciting to think about if we survive as a species, where our computer technology will take us inevitably. I seem to think us crafting a virtual reality world is very likely, because think about it. If you could plug yourself into a virtual reality world that was run by very complex software and an incredibly powerful computer that we can't even that we couldn't even imagine. Remember, if you've ever seen The Matrix, I mean, these people were living in, until they actually exited The Matrix, and then they were in the real world. But when they were inside The Matrix, that, that pretend reality, that digital reality, they ate, they slept, they would breathe, they could die, all within that Matrix. So it's very fantastical to think about a situation that, you know, the human race, if we survive long enough, that we could be in something like that. Now, how many people would just be willing to just say, hey, you know what? I'd rather live in the, the fantasy world and have an avatar and <laughs> be better looking and have a, a, a better physique and so on and so forth. How many people would be willing to just give up actual reality and live in that simulation? I wrote a paper about that in college because that always fascinated me. If we were confronted with that decision, what would people, what would the average person do? Would the average person person decide to live in this world? Or would they decide to completely live in this virtual world where, by the way, you could eat and taste the food, you could smell things, the olfactory senses would be going crazy, it would be as real as it could get. This wouldn't be putting on VR glasses, you know. It would just, be, you know, it would be completely different than that. It would almost be, I, would, I could imagine just using my imagination here, but I would think that it would be something along the lines of, you know, like like I talked about Elon Musk and Neuralink. You know, so you would actually be plugging your mind into something. So there'd be no need for goggles or any kind of suit or anything. As far as virtual, I mean, our virtual reality that we have today is rudimentary compared to what could be coming in the very distant future. I don't think I'll, I'll live long enough to see that, but who the heck knows? Who knows? I'm hoping I live long enough to see us land on Mars, hopefully uh, with SpaceX's rockets that we could create a settlement on Mars. I want to see us create settlements in our solar system. I think we need to because there are many natural disasters that could happen that could really make life intolerable here on earth one of those things being a super volcano i think it's very important for us to to migrate off the planet and continue our species because if we do not if we if we stay a one planet civilization there are too many things that can happen uh, naturally occurring things that can happen and not even mentioning what we could do to ourselves with war and so on and so forth so i think that's really important but i want to know what you think about I want, to, I want to know if you believe we're living in a simulation. What do you think about that? What do you think about colonizing the solar system? I want you to email me directly. Info at scienceanimated.net. That's my email address. Info at scienceanimated.net. I might just read your question or comment on the air. I love interacting with you guys. I know this is a pre-recorded show, so there's no phone calls, but please feel free anytime to email me. Info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. That's my email address. The Live Science had a great article on the simulation question. And they're saying, 
chances are about 50-50 that we were living in a simulation. Now, in 2003, Nick Bostrom of the University of Oxford wrote a seminal paper about the simulation argument. Philosophers, physicists, technologists, and yes, comedians have been grappling with the idea of our reality being a simulation. Some have tried to identify ways in which we can discern if we are simulated beings. Others have attempted to calculate the chance of us being virtual entities. Now a new analysis shows that the odds that we're living in base reality, meaning an existence that is not simulated, are pretty much even. But the study also demonstrates that if humans were to ever develop the ability to simulate conscious beings, the chances would overwhelmingly tilt in favor of us too being virtual inside someone else's computer. In 2003, Bostrom imagined a technologically adept civilization that possesses immense computing power and needs a fraction of that power to simulate new realities with conscious beings in them. Given this scenario, his simulation argument showed that at least one proposition in the following trilemma must be true. First, humans must always go extinct before reaching the simulation-savvy stage. Second, if humans make it to that stage, they are unlikely to be interested in, in simulating their own ancestral past. And third, the probability that we are living in a simulation is close to one. Before Bostrom, the movie The Matrix had already done its part to popularize the notion of simulated realities, and the idea has deep roots in Western and Eastern philosophical traditions, from Plato's cave allegory to Swang Tzu's butterfly dream. Most recently, Elon Musk gave further fuel to the concept that our reality is a simulation, and I quote, The odds that we are in base reality is one in billions, he said at a 2016 conference. Now think about that. Elon Musk says the odds that we're in base reality is one in billions. So he does not think that we are living in base reality. Base reality meaning the real reality. He thinks the chances are quite good that we are in a simulation. To get a better handle on Bostrom's simulation argument, David Kipping of Columbia University decided to resort to Bayesian reasoning. This type of analysis uses Bayes' theorem, named after Thomas Bayes, an 18th century English statistician and minister. Bayesian analysis allows one to calculate the odds of something happening, called the posterior probability, by first making assumptions about the thing being analyzed, assigning it a prior probability. Kipping began by turning the trilemma into a dilemma. He collapsed propositions one and two into a single statement, because in both cases, the final outcome is that there are no simulations. Thus, the dilemma pits a physical hypothesis against the simulation hypothesis. There's base reality and there are simulations too. You just assign a prior probability to each of these models, Kipping says. We just assume the principle of indifference, which is the default assumption when you don't have any data or leanings either way. So each hypothesis gets a prior probability of one half, much as if one were to flip a coin to decide a wager. The next stage of analysis required thinking about paros realities, those that can generate other realities. 
in numeperous realities, those I cannot simulate offspring realities. If the physical hypothesis were true, then the probability that we're living in a nulliparous universe would be easy to calculate. It would be 100%. Kipping then showed that even in a simulation hypothesis, most of the simulated realities would be nulliparous. That is because as simulations spew more simulations, the computing resources available to each sub subsequent generation dwindles to the point where the vast majority of realities will be those that do not have the computing power necessary to simulate offspring realities that are capable of hosting conscious beings. So what the heck does all of that mean? The computing power would be far too great, they're saying. You would have realities, you would have digital realities on top of digital realities on top of digital realities. Because remember, if there is a base reality where there are beings with this immense computer power that are able to create our reality, then we get to a point in time where we're able to create computers, create a different reality, a, com a different virtual reality, a simulated reality. And then the people in that reality, in that simulated reality, would create, <laughs> they would get to the point in time where they would have you know, computers that were capable of creating simulated realities and so on and so forth. And they're saying that the, the, the computer, the computing power in the base reality just it couldn't, hand, it couldn't handle it. That's what they're saying here. Plug all these into a Bayesian formula and out comes the answer. The posterior probability that we're living in base reality is almost the same as the posterior probability that we're in a simulation with the odds tilting in favor of base reality by just a smidgen. Now they're saying the odds are tilting in favor that we are in base reality, meaning this is not our reality right here that we're experiencing. You, you listening to me, me speaking these words, this is reality right now. These probabilities would change dramatically if humans created a simulation with conscious beings inside it because such an event would change the cha chances that we previously assigned to the physical hypothesis. You can just exclude that hypothesis right off the bat. Then you are only left with the simulation hypothesis, Kipping says. The day we invent that technology, it flips the odds from a little bit better than 50-50 that we are real to almost certainly that we are not real, according to these calculations. It'd be a very strange celebration for our genius that day. The upshot of Kipping's analysis is that given current evidence, Musk is wrong about the one in billions odds that he ascribes to us living in base reality. Bostrom agrees with the result with some caveats. This does not conflict with the simulation argument, which only asserts something about the disjunction, the idea that one of the three propositions of the trilemma is true. But Bostrom takes issues with Kipping's choice to assign equal prior probabilities to physical and simulation hypothesis at the start of the analysis. The invocation of the principle of indifference here is rather shaky, he says. One could equally well invoke it over my original three alternatives, which would then give, which would then give them one-third chance each, where one could carve up the possibility space in some other manner and get any result one wishes. Such quibbles are valid because there is no evidence to back one claim over the other. That situation would change if we ever find evidence of a simulation. So could you detect a glitch in the matrix? So we're kind of, we have these two thinkers bashing their heads together. And it doesn't seem like we can come up with an agreement here. Now, Halman Awadi 
an expert on com computational mathematics at the California Institute of Technology, has thought about the question, if the simulation has infinite computing power, there is no way you're going to see that you're living in a virtual reality because it could compute whatever you want to the degree of realism you want. Remember what I was saying before? If, if we create a virtual reality, a real virtual reality, where we are smelling things and tasting things and touching things and a fully immersive world without VR goggles and all that kind of stuff, because you know we'll eventually get there with our technology if it keeps advancing. You know, if a cataclysm doesn't happen, we will get there. So what this gentleman is saying, if, if the computational power is so great, how in the world could we ever detect that? How would we know? We wouldn't. We wouldn't know. He goes on to say, if this thing can be detected, you have to start from the principle that it has limited computational resources. Think again of video games, many of which rely on clever programming to minimize the computation required to construct a virtual world. And when we're talking about us possibly living in a simulation, how many of you out there absolutely love playing video games? Aren't you already kind of living in a virtual reality, especially the people with the headsets on and they're talking back and forth to gamers across the globe in some cases? You're already kind of living in that virtual reality. So when you have people that spend so much time in that space as it is, it's not hard to believe that they would make the leap to be fully immersed in a, in a world like that. For Awadi, the, the most promising way to look for potential paradoxes created by such computing shortcuts is through quantum physics experiments. Quantum systems can exist in a superposition of states, and this superposition is described by a mathematical abstraction called the wave function. In standard quantum mechanics, the act of observation causes this wave function to randomly collapse to one of many possible states. Physicists are divided over whether the process of collapse is something real or just reflects a change in our knowledge about the system. If it is just pure simulation, there is no collapse, Awadi says. Everything is decided when you look at it. The rest is just simulation like when you're playing video games. Zohan Devoudi, a physicist at the University of Maryland, College Park, has also entertained the idea that a simulation with infinite computing resources could reveal itself. Her work focuses on strong interactions where the strong nuclear force, one of nature's four fundamental forces. The equations describe strong interactions which, which hold together quarks to form protons and neutrons are so complex that they cannot be solved analytically. To understand strong interaction, physicists are forced to do numerical simulations, and unlike any punitive super-civilizations possessing limitless computing power, they must rely on shortcuts to make those simulations computationally, computationally viable, usually by considering space-time to be discrete rather than continuous. Naturally, you start to ask, if you simulated an atomic nucleus today, maybe in 10 years, we could do a larger nucleus. Maybe in 20 or 30 years, we could do a molecule, Devoudi says. In 50 years, who knows? Maybe you can do something the size of a few inches of matter. Maybe in 100 years or so, we can do the human brain. Devoudi thinks that classical computers will soon hit a wall, however. 
In the next maybe 10 or 20 years, we will actually see the limits of our classical simulations of the physical systems, she says. Thus, she is turning her sights to quantum computation, which relies on superpositions and other quantum effects to make tractable certain computational problems that would be impossible through classical approaches. If quantum computing actually materializes in a sense that it's a large-scale, reliable computing option for us, then we're going to enter a completely different era of simulation. I'm starting to think about how to perform my simulations of strong interaction physics and atomic nuclei if I had a quantum computer that was viable. Now, I've heard a lot of things about quantum computing over the years. It seems like that is... It seems like that's where they want to go next. When I say they, I mean tech companies. They would love to enter the quantum realm. And of course, with that kind of computational power comes the question of how the heck do we secure something like that? What does cybersecurity look like when we have quantum computers? Wow, it's a big question. All of these factors have led the Vaudi to speculate about the simulation hypothesis if our reality is a simulation, then the simulator is likely also discretizing space-time to save on computing resources, assuming, of course, that it is using the same mechanisms as our physics for that simulation. Signatures of such discrete space-time could potentially be seen in the directions high-energy cosmic rays arrive from. They would have a preferred direction in the sky because of the breaking of so-called rotational symmetry. Telescopes haven't observed any deviation from the rotational invariance yet, Devaldi says, and even if such an effect were to be seen, it would not constitute unequivocal evidence that we live in a simulation. Base reality itself could have similar properties. So again, we're trying to find a ripple somewhere. We're trying to find a tear in this possible simulation. It seems like it is an arduous task to find any evidence for simulation because if, if we look this way we're looking for we're looking for problems in the simulation essentially shortcomings in the simulation difficult to find i want to know what you think do you think we're living in a simulation you've heard what these physicists have to say it, it's undecided it seems like some people think it's it's you know like well you have elon musk who is certainly a great thinker of our time an entrepreneur, right? He thinks it's one in a billion chance that we are not living in a simulation. But then you have these physicists that are trying to prove it and they're having a hard time. So is this base reality or are we living in a computer program that was built by someone else? And now we're going to have that computing power one day and we'll do the same thing and so on and so forth. I don't really know. This certainly hasn't been proven yet, but it certainly is fun to think about. And I want to thank you so much for joining me today on The S Factor. You have been listening to me right here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. You can catch me here the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock. And you can also catch me, if you miss any of these shows, at scienceanimated.net. There's an S Factor tab. You can listen to all past S Factors. You can listen to me on Google Podcasts. Just type in The S Factor. Apple Podcasts. Please leave a review and a star rating. I appreciate that. 
And you can also check out my free educational content on my YouTube channel. Easiest way to get there is by scienceanimated.net. Just click on YouTube. I have the Orbit Show, Orbit Show Special Report, and also a video of the S-Factor broadcast available there as well. And all kinds of cool things in the works as far as future educational content. It's all family friendly. Go check it out if you will. And please don't forget to support the show, to support this great world, uh, getting the great world of science out there in an audio form and video form, whether it's the S Factor or the educational stuff on the YouTube channel, the fun stuff for kids, whatever it is, you can help support the show by purchasing Science Animated Human Body, which is a 40-minute animated movie all about the human body. It's a fun educational roller coaster ride, action-packed, kids love it. Whether you're a homeschooler or just a parent or a teacher, whatever you happen to be, if you've got little ones, if you've got nieces, nephews, grandkids, kids love this film. It's $16.99 for the DVD. If you don't have a DVD player anymore and you just want to stream it, that's available too. That's $9.99. Check out scienceanimated.net. It makes an awesome, awesome Christmas present. Thank you for joining me. My name's Chuck Shazer, and you have been listening to The S-Factor. Take care, everyone, and happy holidays. Merry Christmas. See you next time. You have been listening to The S-Factor. Brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net on Cruisin' 92.1 WBLT. Super-